This week on the show, we have trip reports from the Essen Hackathon and BSD Cambridge, call for testing for two things, the ZFS native encryption and UFS trim consolidation. ZFS performance benchmarks we also look at for a new FreeBSD server, how to port your operating system to EC2. We have Windsurf about traceability and remote access console to a Raspberry Pi running FreeBSD. And more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 260, Hacking Tour of Europe, recorded on the 22nd of August, 2018. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And we have had a bit of a back recording. You probably noticed that we weren't uh, coming up with the latest uh, stuff in that week, but we had pre-recordings, but now we're back. And we have a lot of exciting things to talk about, uh, stuff that we were involved in. Speaking of that, uh, we have headlines, of course, which are about these things. Uh, so there was the Essen Hackathon and 2018 BSD Cam close together. So we thought we'd put them in all big, uh, in one big reporting item so that you can uh, yes, nicely see I how did they them all. all one big trip, which was yeah. better, um, but not as beneficial for air miles. <laughs> but Alan was, yeah, Alan was around uh, in a lot of places. Um, I was just, just in Germany, where, well, already, that's not a trip for me, basically. And just um, yeah, BSD Cam in London. No, not in London. <laughs> of course, not in London. Cambridge. Um, but Alan had more visits in between, but one thing after the other. So what started uh, was two weeks ago, uh, I picked up Alan, who came over uh, to Frankfurt Airport, and I picked yeah, him up so there. The morning. Two weeks ago. Tomorrow. So we're recording this Wednesday yeah. the 22nd. But on Thursday the 9th, I got on an airplane <laughs> and then flew overnight and landed in Frankfurt at like six something in the morning. Uh, did the customs and immigration rigmarole and so on. And then uh, sat down and relaxed for a little bit uh, while I waited for a Benedict in our train. And then Benedict showed up and we met up and hung out for a few bits. Uh, and then caught our train from Frankfurt to Essen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's where the uh, Linux Hotel is, where we had our hackathon over the weekend. So this is basically a uh, well, hotel yeah, with a couple of training um, rooms where people during the week do trainings for various IT topics, open source uh, based. And on the weekends, those rooms are pretty much empty, so they can let people in and have community weekends. And that's what we did. We invited a couple yeah, so of developers. They operated as a bed and breakfast, and uh, basically, open source projects can get the, a chunk of a bunch of the rooms together for a much lower price than you would pay if you were a random tourist staring at it as a bed and breakfast. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we have all the facilities available. We can use the rooms, the Wi-Fi, the, the beautiful park. And um, that's what we did. Yes, there were there were some people staying at the bed and breakfast part, and I'm sure they were quite confused by our breakfast conversations. Yeah, what are these guys talking about in English and like just uh, nerdy terms? Like that it, we don't it, understand. Well, it's like was that English or was that something else? <laughs> Is that uh, an alien language we never heard about? Yeah, yeah it's called <laughs> Colonel speak. <laughs> 
yeah, it can be confusing if you're not in our circles, but um, yeah, I guess that's normal if you're in <laughs> in our. Uh, not that's not to say we don't understand anything, but um, yeah, for the untrained ear, that's something un, uh, unpronounceable or <laughs> unknown. Anyway, um, so we arrived at the Linux Hotel quite early. Uh, so Bennett and I kind of just sat in the park and enjoyed the sunshine for a bit. Uh, and then once we had a, a quorum of people, we walked into town and got some lunch. Yeah, and uh, that was basically a, uh, a pizza pickup because by that time we were already 10 people. A couple of them arrived early like we did. So that's half of the, the people who were supposed to arrive and actually did later this day. And uh, that was great, great already having such a number of people around. And immediately we started talking uh, BSD things, of course, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, so we brought the pieces back to the Linux hotel and ate in the nice garden. I had to fight off some wasps so I could eat oh, yeah. pizza. <laughs> I remember they were quite fancy of your drink. Uh, well, uh, and, oh, your were, pizza as well. After my pizza. So I had to school them. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, then we um, we walked a little, around a little bit because a couple of people weren't there before in the Linux hotel. It's uh, you can walk through the park. There's a there's a nice uh, overview uh, into the into the river, and um, then we headed back in, indoors because people hackers, you know, sunshine. Um, and there we started a little bit of hacking. So that's um, uh, they have a nice room with a simne where the breakfasts are being uh, served, and they are. Um, you know, we could get get drinks there, so it was it was a nice atmosphere, and we welcomed everyone who arrived during the and day. We had tasty Chinese food. Yeah, that's what uh, we we ordered takeout, and we we decided to order a little bit of everything, so that people. So we started um, a nice buffet there, so people could pick and choose what they liked. Um, especially, we also had a couple of um, vegetarians there, so we had to cater to those as well. But that worked fine. Everyone was happy, I guess. And um, then a, most people retreated into their rooms because they were tired from traveling. Uh, but a yeah, few. I almost face planted before dinner. <laughs> yeah, Alan was still fighting. Um, well, I think I had been awake for thirty hours straight at that point. Don't yeah, blame me. Brad Davis was also uh, early to to go to bed, but that was fine. I, I heard from Seven that he would be. Uh, staying up until 1 a.m. in the morning. But he was just um, <laughs> a different time zone. Uh, he just had to cover for an hour. Of, right. Uh, he was he, he's changed one hour of time zones, not six. That, that, that's quite different, yeah. Uh, so Saturday, we all gathered up in the, one of the seminar rooms, uh, and we basically did a quick round of introductions and then got to work. Uh, I worked on mostly... Uh, the tooling to get the SSL trust roots into the FreeBSD based system uh, and looking at a weird ZFS scrub issue that where it would report 200% completion. Uh, <laughs> That's a bit too much. Yeah. So I figured out we have a hypothesis about what's going wrong, but not a solution yet. Um, have to play with that still. It's weird because I don't remember seeing that problem on a previous version of that. Uh, so I'm not sure when the problem got introduced. I have to dig and bisect some more. But it's been fixed now, right? In head, at least, there's a um, commit. Possibly? I don't know. There was Somebody proposed an awful hack, and I hope that's not what got committed. I haven't been able to keep up. 
I'm still way behind. Yeah, we'll probably report on this again in the future if it's coming up again, or someone asks us in the feedback <clears throat> question, something trips, someone trips over it. But yeah, that was one thing. So other people also started um, small groups to discuss um, libiocage, for example. They did some man page work, I hear, in in, a, in the adjacent room. And some people did ports, some people did um, uh, PR work, so they uh, fixed some PRs and did some commits of their own that they um, were, were working on or brought with them to to, fin to finish there. So that was exactly what this hackathon was about, to, you know, less talk, more action, although you could talk, of course, and coordinate, but it was basically focusing more on people getting stuff done and committed and making some kind of impact. And... Um, Oh, even though I had planned for something, I couldn't get to it because, um, you know, I was kind of the organizer and helped here and there a little bit. So um, I had to organize uh, food and, and stuff so that people didn't get hungry in there. So just provide enough fuel for, for hackers to, to continue hacking. And uh, in the evening of the Saturday, we had planned a barbecue. Luckily, we had uh, help to organize this. I mean, we had to buy things and... Um, People had to operate the, the barbecue in the first place and start a fire and all these things. That's a bit much for a single person, so I'm glad I had help. So thanks for that from some of the hackers. And um, yeah, everyone enjoyed in the evening a nice barbecue in the park, which was great because the weather was fine, not too hot, not too cold. And um, yeah, that was also a nice way of you know finishing up and adding uh, more, more spice to it by, by talking to each other and having a good time. So, and then on Sunday, um, the, we had a, that's our uh, last day, but um, most people uh, pretty much packed up their luggage in the morning and stored it in the seminar room where we were, and we basically continued uh, hacking in the morning, and then uh, after lunch, uh, or at lunchtime, we had a um, nice uh, group event at a local restaurant uh, that was a bit of, um, organized on the, on the last minute because we had to... Um, make arrangements because the restaurant wasn't open on Saturday, but that was fine. We could move in there on Sunday, so that's just switched around to social event, and then uh, we head back. A couple of people had to leave early, uh, including myself, but a few of them, <laughs> I met them again at the train station, heading to the Essen <laughs> main train station, but uh, yeah, well, there they are. I guess everyone had uh, their own departure plans anyway, so that was a nice way of you know, bringing people together one more time at the lunch and then everyone departed in their own direction and the feedback that I got from the actual attendees they liked it they were uh, overall happy with how it how it went and even the new people um, were surprised um, what kind of things they did and uh, like the environment uh, from the Linux hotel and um, we got a nice listing of the commits that uh, were done at the hackathon so we have this uh, over at fresh BSD uh, Remember, this is from 2018, so if you see some entries from 2017, the previous years, um, those won't fit, but uh, all the 2018 entries are pretty much what people did there or as a result of that hackathon. Yep. And then, yeah, so Sunday, I uh, rode home with Christoph. We went detoured to Leuven in uh, Belgium uh, via the Netherlands on the ride home uh, and had dinner there uh, with some other... FreeBSD people and some FOSDEM people. Uh, and then we went to Brussels and dropped off uh, Nicholas and Anna because that's where they were staying. And then I went back to Christoph's house and uh, we went to bed. It was <laughs> late already. I uh, guess so, yeah. <clears throat> uh, and then the next morning I got up and uh, 
basically rushed off to the train station, uh, caught a local train to Brussels South and then the Eurostar to London. And then I uh, managed to catch the a fast train from London to uh, Cambridge with three minutes to spare because the train was four minutes late. <laughs> <laughs> That's sad. So proud of that one. Um, so there was that. Um, and then I was in Cambridge, yeah. And then I decided to walk uh, from the train station to um, Churchill, which is about a 50 or 55 minute walk. Um, I got rained on in the middle a bit. Oh. Uh, <laughs> in the middle, I did take a short break and uh, had uh, some lunch as well, avoided some of the rain. Uh, and then as I was approaching Churchill, uh, I noticed someone walking uh, a little bit ahead of me, also with a suitcase and so on. So I on a, just thought, I think I know who that is, sent a, <laughs> a Threema message, and then suddenly the person stops and looks at their phone and then turns around and looks at me. It's like, oh, hi. Uh, Excellent. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I got into... I uh, checked into the college there. Uh, part of the reason why I walked from the train station is if I had taken the bus or whatever, I would have gotten to the college too soon before check-in time. But by uh. taking the hour walk with a half-hour break for lunch, I managed to arrive uh, at check-in time. Yeah, the train station is a bit far away from where we're staying. Yeah. Um, well, I walked it. It wasn't that bad. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, I walked it with Christoph on the way back as well. Ah, yeah, I remember the, the group you, of you leaving uh, mm -hmm. for the train station on the last day. Although Matthew took some shortcut we didn't know about and beat us to the train station somehow. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Haha, <laughs> uh, love this. <laughs> yeah, well, I anyway, had to walk so on, I got uh, checked in and got caught up on, there was a bit of work stuff that had come up while I was in transit. As it usually does during the, the hackathons and during the conferences, more stuff keeps coming up. Oh, we forgot you were at the conference. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I was heading back uh, on Sunday from the hackathon to work because I had to work on Monday. But I'm a bit short on holiday time, but that's okay. So uh, one day um, uh, of work didn't kill me too much. And then on Tuesday, I've um, headed to <laughs> to Frankfurt again, not to pick up Alan again, but uh, to actually fly to uh, London Heathrow and then uh, went to Cambridge, where I arrived on the Tuesday. So I, I didn't um, think it would take so long. So I thought about heading to the lab, but uh, I already messaged people and they said, no, they were about to come back. And so we uh, met at the... Um, at the uh, Churchill College and then went to the Maypole, where the um, most... People had an introductory pub. Yep. Dinner our, drinks. Uh, yep. Pre-conference pub, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was nice to see people again and some new people. And it kind of gave you an idea how big this thing now is and how many people would show up on the next day, which is the official first uh, day at the computer lab. So yeah. that was nice um, because, yeah, so Wednesday comes and a lot of people um, met also uh, first in the breakfast room of Churchill College where most of us were staying. And then we locked, uh, walked to the computer lab, which isn't too far away. And then we went into our usual room where we uh, typically gather to uh, welcome everyone and made introductions. 
And that typically, since this was an unconference style, so there was no preset schedule or agenda, we did, um, did this for a couple of years now, and it's uh, quite successful. So we basically discuss what people are interested in, and then from that interest, um, we try to form interest groups or working groups that want uh, the most people that want to say uh, CPU mitigation uh, efforts, for example. If 10 people in the room will talk about this, then definitely that's a working group. Yep, uh, we had quite a few working groups. Uh, we did a much better job than in some previous years of taking notes. Uh, I know I took the notes during the transport session. Mm -hmm. uh, and some other people took uh, notes during the storage session because I was, you know, busy talking. Uh, yeah, it's good if the person who leads a group doesn't have to do the notes because then uh, the moderation is a bit off. Uh, that's what, at least what I would think. Yep. And it would slow uh, things down. Yeah. Uh, but someone is uh, there with a laptop open anyway and is typically happy to not directly or not too much interact with, but people are also uh, happy to take notes. So uh, that was done. And uh, we have a bunch of notes created for each session. So I guess um, people who weren't there can gather what we talked about and hopefully uh, get something out of it and uh, yeah, maybe contribute something if they're interested in helping out. So I find it I found it very productive this this year. Not that the other years were unproductive, but I guess this time we had a lot more uh, drive and energy to get some things moving forward, and um, that was that was nice to see. Yeah, uh, I definitely got uh, a lot done, although none of it the things I expected to get done. <laughs> yeah, I also had as some you do commit grinding done in the, one of the afternoons there were some sessions that weren't too interesting for me so I just sat down and you know grinded a couple of commits out that I uh, wanted to do and then I got into some kind of uh, you know uh, hacking mode and started grinding out commits and that was that was also a kind of a success and I guess the energy in the room helped a little bit uh, with all the other people around Yeah, so that's what, that was pretty much going on for three days. And on the uh, Thursday evening, we had a nice formal dinner at Trinity College, uh, Trinity Hall, sorry. Um, that was nice with a three-course meal and uh, some drinks before that. Uh, that was certainly nice. And people uh, dressed up. That was uh, interesting mm -hmm. to see. You see these hackers typically in, you know, T-shirts and jeans. That, that's their hacking outfit. But then you go and, and, and to these uh, formal dinners. And uh, it's not a requirement, uh, but people like to dress up a little no, bit. No, there more. were still a good number of T-shirts and so on. Uh, people mm -hmm. are traveling and so on. But... <laughs> Uh, yes, a number of people were dressed up and that worked out nicely. Yep. Yeah, so they, I guess they will have us back because we uh, behaved well and <laughs> leave the place. I had never it, seen Christoph in a suit before. It, that was certainly, yeah, that was that was cool, yeah. So <laughs> kudos to that. And um, yeah, that was nice. And uh, on the other days, we didn't have any organized dinners, but people formed small groups and went into town there, into the pubs. That was uh, typically uh, a nice way of ending the day. And um, yeah. We want to give out a uh, special thanks for all the organizers of BSDCAM for making it happen. 
and um, providing all the rooms, the power supplies, and all these things that make this um, event such a success. And uh, we also want to have a special mention for uh, a certain uh, Robert Watson and his family. So even though he could not be there, he had a good reason uh, to miss that actual event in his home university. They had their first child born at the beginning of the week. At least that's what I could gather from um, from Facebook that people showed me. Uh, so congratulations and uh, best wishes to all three of them. And we hope to see all three maybe in the future. Who knows? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, these events uh, uh, happened. And now we have a new item, uh, call for testing, ZFS native encryption for FreeBSD. A lot of people have been waiting for this. Uh, yeah, so this is a port of the ZFS on Linux uh, feature that provides native crypto support for ZFS. Uh, and it's now ready for initial testing on FreeBSD. Uh, so most of the work for the port here was done by uh, Sean Eric Fagan uh, and... Uh, then organizing the call for testing mails from uh, Matt Macy. Uh, but basically this provides uh, the ability to encrypt individual data sets with different keys. Uh, so you can say, you know, I don't want to encrypt everything, but my home directory, I want that encrypted. And maybe this database over here should be encrypted. Uh, and you can have different keys. One of the nice things about the way this, this version is designed is you can unload the key when you don't need the data set. So you can unmount the data set and not have the key loaded, meaning your data is actually at rest and actually encrypted. Whereas, sure. you know, with full disk encryption, either the computer's on or the computer's off, basically, right? And if the computer's on, then uh, somebody can read the data on the off the machine. But uh, with the, this feature, you can uh, unmount data when you're not using it and then therefore not have the issue uh, of the data being accessible. Uh, the other nice thing is Scrub and Resilver, etc., work even when the encryption key is not available. Ah, uh, of course, yeah. So That's... basically what happens is the checksum field gets split in half. The first half is your regular checksum, and the second half is the MAC of the encrypted data. Uh, this means that a scrub is still able to check the checksum of the encrypted data and be able to recover and resilver and so on uh, without having to load the key. And when you load the key, it can still also check that the plain text has the correct uh, content. Ah, that's good because the scrub basically doesn't care whether it's encrypted or not. It just wants to make sure that the checksums are still the same. Yeah. Uh, in the end, it gives you the ability to, you know, have your secret data stay secret a lot better than full disk encryption does. Uh, but if you are especially paranoid, full disk encryption might be better because everything's encrypted. With this feature, top-level pool stuff is not encrypted, uh, and a lot of the system, like ZFS metadata, not your file metadata, but the ZFS metadata is not encrypted because it, it needs to be able to read it uh, to know how to encrypt and decrypt the other stuff. Um, so it works... Nicely, if you have a couple of individual data sets you want to have encrypted possibly with different keys, uh, but it's not the same idea as full disk encryption. Mm -hmm. Anyway, if you would like to know more about how it works, uh, there's a link to the ZFS and Linux commit that originally brought it in, uh, but I also provided links from the OpenZFS Deve uh, Developer Summit from 2016, 
uh, with both video and slides of an overview of how it all works and what some of the decisions that were made are and how it differs from the Oracle version. Mm -hmm. Oh, speaking uh, of that Dev Summit, that is just three weeks away from now. So in case people are... Is, yes. uh, so people should, uh, if they're interested, should uh, go there. Yep. Uh, and just a warning for this call for testing. Uh, you probably want to test in a VM or with spare disks, etc. Uh, pools created with this code or any pool where you run zpool upgrade with this code uh, will have this feature activated and you won't be able to import it on uh, a pool that doesn't have the encryption feature. Um, in the final version, it'll be the warnings will be less severe and it'll probably be okay. But in the meantime, you do have to watch out. Uh, this testing version is not the final version and things might change. And so uh, you don't want to put all your production data on that and then have it get stuck or something. Mm. Yeah, that's good to know. Um, but definitely test this. And the better it's tested, the more likely it is that bugs are found or that it's been integrated faster. Yes. Uh, it'd be good to find the bugs in test pools instead of live ones. <laughs> yeah. And uh, okay. the work to bring that feature over from Linux to FreeBSD uh, was funded by IX Systems. Yeah. IXSystems.com slash BSD now and check out their uh, ebook on how open source storage is disrupting the enterprise market. Yeah, especially with features like ZFS, that is what IX Systems has been focusing on for a while, and their servers and supporting work in, in ZFS areas. And you can get a nice ZFS storage server uh, from them, or you just call them up and say, hey, I have this future project that needs X servers or should run X software X, and what kind of solutions can you build me and what kind of hardware would be best for this kind of scenario? And then they will recommend exactly the components or um, tell you, oh, this needs a little bit more uh, CPUs or this would need a little bit more uh, RAM because it's more like an in-memory thing. Then um, they will build exactly that solution for you and just don't put something down from the, from the shelf. Yep. So head over to ixsystems.com slash BSD now and check them out. Uh, say thank you for encrypted ZFS and tell them we sent you. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good way of you know uh, saying uh, thanks for uh, the efforts. I mean, they also sponsor uh, MeetBSD later this year and other conferences where um, they they not not only show their presence but also what they do for the community and uh, as a as a product vendor. Mm -hmm. Okay, more call for testing. Uh, we have in Your this heads. one. Um, yes. UFS, which wants you to know that it's not dead yet. <laughs> it's there. Yeah, it's been worked on. So there is something coming down um, that uh, Kirk McCusick has been posting to the mailing list. And yeah. uh, uh, So Kirk McCusick, uh, who wrote the original fast file system back in the 80s? Way back when, yeah, but it's still... 70s? Uh, uh, post to the FreeBSD mailing list looking for testers for the new trim consolidation feature. So, when deleting files on a file system that is stored on flash-based solid-state disk drives, the file system notifies the underlying device of which blocks are no longer in use so that the wear leveling and so on can do its job. The notification allows the drive to avoid saving those blocks when it needs to uh, flush and zero out uh, sections of the flash. Um, these notifications 
are no longer being uh, about no longer being used blocks are referred to as trim notifications. Uh, in FreeBSD, trim notifications are sent to the file system or from the file system to the drive using the BIO delete command, uh, one of the basic operations. Until now, file systems would send a separate message for uh, sorry to the drive for each block of the file that was deleted. So a gigabyte uh, file being deleted would result in over 3,000 trim messages being sent to the drive. This mm. burst of messages could overwhelm the drive's task queue, causing multiple second delay on read or write requests because it's going to do those 3,000 other requests first. Uh, and some drives are pretty slow at doing trims as well. Uh, so this implementation collects runs of contiguous blocks uh, in a file and then consolidates those into a single biodelete command. Uh, so the biodelete describes uh, a range of blocks, uh, a contiguous range of blocks, as a single large block and asks for it to be deleted. This way, each gigabyte of, fi of a file can result in just a couple of uh, biodelete commands, and typically uh, that'll finish a lot faster. Uh, though these large biodelete commands take longer to run, they do not clog up the drive's task queue, uh, and so run and uh, read and write commands can intersperse them and you won't end up with uh, this long delay uh, because you just deleted some data. So though, while this feature uh, has been thoroughly tested and reviewed, uh, it has been added to the tree disabled by default. Um, so we need people to test this ahead of the upcoming 12.0 release uh, so that we can enable it uh, by default. So uh, if you have a machine that you can test this on, set vfs.ffs.dotrimcons for enable trim consolidation. Uh, users are encouraged to test it. Uh, if no problems arise, we'll consider uh, requesting that it be enabled by default in 12. Uh, the support is off by default, uh, but they're hoping to get enough testing that A, it works, and B, that it's helpful. Uh, and we'd have to have that testing completed by... Uh, about a, less than a month from now uh, in order to have it finished in time for the branching of 12.0. Great. Um, so just set the CCTL and it'll begin. Uh, I have a link in the show notes to a second uh, post which has patches that add additional statistics so you can see uh, how big of a difference the changes are actually making. Uh, so it'll show, you know, I consolidated these 100 trims into one single trim and so on. Uh, also, if you use the gstat command, uh, which finds Gelly stats and normally shows, you know, queued operations, read and writes per second, and how long each of those is taking and so on. Um, if you use the dash D flag, it'll add an additional set of columns for the number of deletes per second, the megabytes per second being deleted, and how long each operation is taking on average in milliseconds. Uh, so with that, you'll be able to see a big difference kind of before and after uh, doing these trim deletes. Okay, excellent. Yeah, so people who are still using UFS in their embedded devices can now make use of that because embedded devices typically are using SSDs for various reasons. And yeah, this is a nice way of um, using that uh, in their uh, UFS environments. Very nice. Yeah. 
So, time for News Roundup this week. We have exciting news about ZFS performance benchmarking that might be interesting to a couple of people out there. So, Alan, take it away. Yeah, uh, Aravind Sampath Kumar, uh, who's a performance engineer in Sysadmin, uh, did a post uh, about some simple benchmarks that he did on a new FreeBSD and ZFS file server before he put it into production. He says, uh, this is not an all-in post about ZFS performance. I built a ZFS uh, file server on FreeBSD recently at work, and it will serve as an off-site backup server. I wanted to run a few synthetic workloads on it and uh, look at how it fares uh, from the performance perspective, mostly for curiosity and learning purposes. As stated in the notes about building this server, uh, performance was not one of my priorities, It, um, as this server will never face our active workload. It's just for backups. Uh, what I did care about with the server is the ability to work with rsync and to keep the data synchronized uh, with our primary server. With that context, I ran a few write tests to see how good our solution is and what we can expect from it in terms of performance. Uh, so basically they just did some simple FIO benchmarks, um, but because they're a performance engineer, they uh, were aware of some of the specific issues and did some things right that will make a much bigger difference in the performance benchmarks they get. The first one, is they set the block size in FIO to 128 kilobytes to match the default record size in ZFS. Mm -hmm. uh, previous customer I saw who was having some trouble uh, was using a block size of four kilobytes. Well, the data set had a record size of 128 kilobytes. This results mm -hmm. in you have this 128K block, write the first 4K of it, then you would read that 4K and then write 8K, and then read that 8K and write 12K, and then read that 12K and write 16K over and over and over again, and copy and write it. Uh, and because it's inside the same record, you actually copy that data every time. Um, and then what this was doing, because they had trim support enabled in ZFS, uh, they would constantly be deleting the old copies of the block, right? Once they take read the 4K and write the 8K version somewhere else, they then free the 4K version and then the 8K version, and then the 12K, and the 16K, and so on and so on, up to 128K, until they were actually um, saturating the IOPS that they were allowed in their VM just doing deletes. Because in ZFS, uh, the deletes are delayed, it waits, I think, 32 transaction groups or so uh, before it starts doing the freeze so that a block that gets quickly overwritten uh, doesn't end up getting trimmed. Um, to avoid doing extra work, they would see really good-ish performance for a while. And then as soon as the benchmark had been running long enough that the trims from the beginning would start happening, the performance would just fall off a cliff. Hmm, bad. And they were like, what is this? Why does it work great for the first two minutes of the benchmark and then go really bad? And I was like, oh, well, it's doing all these deletes. Um, so disable trim and that helped. And then I was like, oh, well, if you just set the record size of the data set you're running FIO on to 4K, you won't generate the deletes in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then suddenly they were like, oh, that's even better performance than we were looking for. Uh, but anyway, so making sure the block size match uh, was a big difference there. The other thing to consider are the compressibility uh, a lot of the benchmarks tool will just write all zeros. Well, ZFS will see that, 
and be like, oh, all zeros, I recognize that pattern, and it will write a hole instead of the data. So it just says, I know that that whole range is all zeros. So it just keeps track of that in metadata, and you end up not writing any data to the disk. Uh, well, you can write no data to the disk really, really fast. <laughs> and then get benchmark numbers that you could never replicate under real workloads. Yeah, because it's synthetic. Uh, right. So um, in the case of FIO, it doesn't quite do that. Um, it If you set to use 100% compressible, it just writes a certain string over and over again. In this case, dead beef, because you can do that in hex. Um <laughs> Uh, and that's a configuration option. So if you write two megabytes of dead beef, uh, ZFS will compress that down to about 165 kilobytes. So you can write a lot of that to the disk per second uh, because you're going to only have to write 165 kilobytes for every two megabytes of data. Uh, so you can turn that off and write random data that won't compress, and then you'll get uh, very different performance numbers. Then uh, they course. also looked at the number of concurrent uh, FIO processes you use and how that affects performance. Uh, so once you consider compression and so on, so now with 0% compressible data, uh, a single thread writing a 128 gigabyte file wrote about 1,600 megabytes per second, as you can see here. Yeah. Um, and the latency of each write was about 45 microseconds. That's quite hmm. good. Uh, and as soon as you use two processes instead of one, then they were up to about 2,600 megabytes a second with a latency of only 61 microseconds. Okay. Uh, and then adding additional processes beyond that didn't seem to make much of a performance improvement, but did see the latency go up. Uh, I think part of that is some, the default tuning in ZFS. Um, is there's up, you're allowed up to four gigabytes of dirty data. Um, in this particular system, they have 768 gigs of RAM, which is a lot. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so they can probably tune that number a bit higher uh, and have eked out quite a bit more performance. Um, so there's this uh, graph. So when the dirty data buffer, that four gigabytes, is 30% or less full, um, there's no uh, pushback. ZFS will just take the data and write as fast as possible, or it'll read the data, it'll take the data from the application as fast as it can. Once that is more than 30% full, ZFS slowly starts pushing back. It, it, it sleeps a little bit before returning each of those uh, write calls so that it slowly slows the application down because if the dirty data is building up, then... Um, the disks aren't able to keep up. And so it's going to push back on the application so the application knows not to just fill the system's memory with dirty data. That the disks are never going to be, at a, at a rate the disks will never be able to keep up with. Um, and then, so that graph kind of scales up until it gets to, I think it's 60 or 80%. Uh, and at that point, it actually starts pushing back really hard uh, and telling the application, hey, I, I can't take more data than that. Because they're doing 2,600 plus megabytes per second here, and the buffer is only four gigabytes, um, increasing that buffer might make a big difference in the latency numbers here. 
Uh, and because the total throughput of the disk they have probably can do more than that. And so uh, they could level out that latency curve quite a bit with just a little bit of tuning. Hmm. <clears throat> yeah, it's certainly interesting to look at these numbers. And it's, they're nicely uh, put into tables and uh, rendered graphs so you can compare them. Uh, and then they did the same test, but with 50% compressible data. Uh, and they saw about the same performance as the uh, completely compressible data. Or sorry, the completely uncompressible data, uh, which is a little bit of increase in latency. Um, that was kind of interesting because I would have expected a bit more speed boost from the compression. Um, but I don't know what 50% compressible actually comes out to uh, as far as what ZFS's uh, LZ4 can do compression then lastly they do the test with compressible data in which case a single thread can do about 2500 megabytes per second uh, with the 44 microseconds of latency and two threads could do about 4600 megabytes a second and then once they get up to four threads they're already uh, looking at like over 6400 megabytes a second uh, and even with the maximum, uh, or even with running with nine processes, the latency topped out at 168 microseconds instead of over 400, uh, the uncompressible data. Uh, but again, this is because the disks are able to keep up better. Because while you're writing 6,400 megabytes per second of logical data, you're compressing that data quite a bit. Uh, and so you're actually writing less data to the disk. Uh, and so the disks aren't, or the disks are more able to keep up because you're writing less data. Hmm. Makes sense, yeah. So he says, if the data is highly compressible, ZFS munches it much faster uh, because there are fewer disk writes and so on. So we can say, uh, if we look at, say, four processes, because that's about the sweet spot here, um, uncompressible data did about 2,800 megabytes a second. Somewhat compressible data, uh, oddly, was lower at only 2100 megabytes a second and higher latency, that one might be worth some investigating as what was going on there. Uh, and then lastly, very compressible data was doing uh, more than double the throughput at like half the latency. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that was quite interesting. And they also have some HTOP output here showing all <laughs> a lot of uh, 40 cores uh, so it's a 10 core processor with 20 threads and there are two sockets worth of it uh, and as you see none of those are saturated uh, so they had some overhead still or some headspace uh -huh. so uh, in conclusion they say it was fun looking at the performance of a ZFS server in the context that it would be used in I'm um, Amazed particularly by how ZFS handles compressible data with ease. At some point, it should become the default. Actually, I think it is the default. Uh, all right. I guess it's not actually the default in ZFS, but on FreeBSD, if you use the installer, that is turned on by default. Yeah. Knowing that the nice. system I built exceeds performance goals is always good. Hopefully, these notes uh, help others look into it. One other particular note they had was that as long as they were doing over 1200 megabytes a second, they didn't care because they only had a 10 gigabit network connection to their backup server. 
Yeah, so, that's their next bottleneck. <laughs> as long as it could do 1,200 megabytes a second, that's fine. Well, uncompressible data does more than double that, and compressible data does like 6x that. So they're quite happy. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure they are. And yeah, having that as a nice way of uh, knowing what the performance is and having the data to uh, confirm that is nice to uh, argue about it and, you know, um, confirm these. All right, uh, next up is how to port your operating system to EC2 by Colin Percival. And his uh, personal blog, he's been uh, reflecting on his FreeBSD on EC2 maintainership efforts in recent years. And that's what we're about to cover here. So he writes, I've been the maintainer of the FreeBSD EC2 platform for about seven and a half years now. Oh, wow, has it been that long? And as far as running things in virtual machine goes, that remains the only operating system and the only cloud which he is working on. So that said, from time to time, he gets questions from people who want to port other operating systems into EC2. And being a member of the open source community, he does not, uh, or he does his best actually to help. Uh, he realized a few days ago that rather than replying to emails one by one, it would be more efficient to post something publicly. So for the benefit of dozens or so people who want to port operating systems to run in EC2 and uh, the curiosity of maybe a thousand more people who use EC2 and the millions of uh, BSD Now uh, listeners, <laughs> but will never build AMIs themselves, he's a rough guide to building EC2 images. So, uh, but before we can talk about building these images, there are a couple of things you need. So first, your operating system needs to run on x86 hardware, 64-bit, aka AMD64 or x86-64. Uh, that would be ideal, but, uh, but he writes it managed to also run 32-bit FreeBSD on 64-bit EC2 instances, so at least in some cases that's not strictly necessary. Next up, you almost certainly want to have drivers for the ZenBlock devices for all the pre-Nitro EC2 instance for or the NVMe disks that they now have. Uh, the recent ones have those. Typically or theoretically, you would make uh, do with these since there's some ATA emulation available for bootstrapping. But if you want to do any disk I.O. after the kernel finishes booting, you'll want to have a disk driver because otherwise your performance plummets. Uh, similarly, you need uh, support for the actual Zen network interface for the older instances, Intel 10 gigabyte SR IOV networking, like some newer uh, pre-intro inst Nitro instances, or Amazon's ENA network adapters, or these Nitro images. Uh, unless you plan on having instances which don't communicate over the network, uh, which is kind of useless, I guess. Um, so the ENA driver, he writes, is probably the hardest thing to port since as far as he knows, there's no way to get your hands on the hardware directly and it's very difficult to do any debugging in EC2 without having a working network. So finally, the obvious. You need to have an AWS account and appropriate API access keys. That's a requirement, of course, yeah. So then you start building the disk images. And that requires building an AMI, so uh, an Amazon machine image. Um, he wrote a simple tool for converting disk images into EC2 instances, which is BSD EC2 image dash upload. So, yeah, BSD EC2 dash image dash upload, to be correct. And it uploads a disk image to Amazon S3, their uh, storage system, makes an API call to import that disk image into an EBS volume, and then creates a snapshot of that volume, which then registers an EC2 AMI using that snapshot. So to use the BSD EC2 image upload tool, you'll first need to create an S3 bucket for it to use on a staging area. You can call it anything you like, but he recommends that you 
created in a nearby region for performance reasons and uh, that you set an S3, uh, S3 lifecycle policy uh, that deletes the object automatically after one day since uh, that upload uh, doesn't clean up the S3 bucket automatically and those objects are useless once you've finished creating an AMI so you don't have them lying around. Uh, boot configuration, that's next. Uh, so odds are that your instance started booting and got as far as the bootloader launching the kernel uh, but at some point after that, things went sideways. So uh, we start the iterative process of building disk images, turning them into AMIs, launching set AMIs, and seeing where they break. Some things you will probably run into here. EC2 instances have two types of consoles available to them, a serial console and a VGA console, or rather an emulated serial and emulated VGA. So if you have your kernel output go to both consoles, he recommends doing that. If you have to pick one, the serial console, which shows up as a system log in EC2, is probably more useful than the VGA console, which shows up as an instance screenshot, since it lets you see more than one screen of logs at once. Uh, but here's a catch. Due to some bizarre breakage in EC2, uh, which he's been complaining about for 10 years now, the serial console is very laggy. If you find that you're not getting any output, wait five minutes and try again. Oh, five minutes is a long time. Oh, wow. Okay, so you may need to tell your kernel where to find the root file system. Uh, on FreeBSD, we build our own disk images using GPT labels, so we simply need to specify in etc fs tab that the root file system is on slash dev gpt slash rootfs. But if you can't do this, you'll probably need to have different AMIs for Nitro instances versus non-Nitro instances since ZenBlock devices typically show up uh, with different device names from NVMe disks. Uh, but on FreeBSD, he also needs to set the vfs.root.monfrom kernel environment uh, for a while. Uh, this is also no longer needed on FreeBSD, but something similar may be needed on other systems. And you will need a um, functioning network or enable the networking in the first place using DHCP. Uh, that's easy on FreeBSD. This means placing ifconfig underscore default equals sync DHCP into your rc.conf. Uh, under other systems, we'll have other ways of specifying network parameters, and it will be necessary to specify a setting for the Zen network device, Intel SRIOV network, and the Amazon ENA interface, so that you'll have the necessary configuration across all EC2 instance of types available. And um, you almost certainly want to run on SSH, because secure connections, uh, so that you can connect into newly launched instances and make use of them. Don't worry about setting a password or creating a user to SSH into yet. Uh, we'll take care of that later. Now, EC2 configuration. It's time to make the AMI behave like an EC2 instance now. So in this uh, case, or to that end, uh, you prepare a set of rc.d scripts for FreeBSD. Most importantly, they print the SSH host key to the console so that you can verify, actually, that they are correct <clears throat> when you first SSH in. Remember, uh, verifying SSH host keys is more important than flossing every day. Uh, that's from a tweet of his. Uh, that's kind of a reminder here. Yeah, so then download the SSH public key you want to use for logging in and create an account by default EC2-user with that key set up for you and only you. Uh, fetch the EC2 user data and process it via config init to allow you to configure the system as part of the process of launching it. And if your OS has an RC system derived from NetBSD's RC.D, you may be able to use these scripts without any changes by simply installing them and enabling them in RC.conf. Uh, otherwise, you may need to write your own scripts using uh, his as a model. So then, the first boot scripts. 
uh, feature uh, that he added to FreeBSD a few years ago is the concept of first boot scripts. So these startup scripts are only run uh, the first time a system boots. The aforementioned config init and SSH key fetching scripts are uh, flagged in this way. So if your operating system doesn't support the first boot keyword on RCD scripts, uh, you'll need to hack around that. But EC2 instances also ship with other scripts set to run on the first boot. Like FreeBSD update will fetch and install security and critical errata updates and then reboot the system if necessary so that you have the latest and uh, greatest version. The UFS file system on the boot disk will be automatically expanded to the full size of the disk, which makes it possible to specify a larger size of disk at EC2 instance launch time. And third-party packages will be automatically fetched and installed according to a list in etcrc.conf so you can get your favorite software installed already. Uh, this is most useful if config init is used to edit the rc.conf since it allows you to specify packages to install. And while none of these are strictly necessary, uh, he finds them extremely useful and highly recommends implementing similar functionality in your systems. And he made uh, at the end of his blog post, there's a bit more details, but we cut it a little bit, um, a call for support of his work. So he hopes that you find this useful, at least very interesting to get started. Uh, please consider supporting his work in this area. Uh, while he's happy to contribute his time to supporting open source software, it would be nice uh, if he had a, a money coming in, which he could use to cover incidental expenses like conference travel, so that Colin uh, didn't end up paying actually to contribute to FreeBSD. And yeah, so thanks, Colin, for all your works in this area. Um, a lot of people are using it and are probably not aware of what kind of work this involved over seven and a half years already. And yeah, hopefully you get a bit more help there and other people get the idea of um, how they can port their operating system to EC2. If all that sounds like a bit of work, uh, <laughs> if you just go to digitalocean.com and click a button, 55 seconds later, you'll have a FreeBSD VM. <laughs> they did all the work, the hard work already for you, so you can just start. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah, that's what they did. Uh, so if you head over to do.co slash BSD now, this is very close to your last chance to get a $100 credit uh, for 60 days and try it out. Uh, yeah. But if you already have an account, uh, you can use our special coupon code FreeBSD now, all one word, uh, and that'll add $10 to your existing account. Oh, yeah. Uh, and with yep. that $10, you can get a VM with two gigs of RAM, uh, one virtual CPU, 50 gigabytes of disk, and two terabytes of internet transfer. Uh, or for just $15, you could make that three gigs of RAM or two vCPUs, uh, and 60 gigs of disk and 30 or three terabytes of transfer. Uh, you know, if you're not doing video streaming and stuff like I do, I don't know how you would go through three terabytes a month on your virtual server. Yeah, and you can already do a couple of things on this. Uh, even if it's a small instance, it has a lot of features already. And if you are uh, already, if you already know what you want, you can also start the pre-built images, like that has a MongoDB database in it or a blog software that uh, you can just run and uh, configure to your liking, so you don't have to spend much time configuring it. There's monitoring available, so you can see how your CPUs and your traffic is, is looking like for each instance. Uh, they have cloud firewalls, they have private networking available, a lot of managing functionality like team features, so you can have multiple people uh, manage this uh, virtual machine without uh, looking 
giving the individual people access to who can see the bills. So that's also nice if you have a, a team of people who should take care of a VM. And, and, and there's much more. Check out DigitalOcean and you can find a lot of things that you might like. So next up, uh, we have traceability by WindServe, none other in the communications of the ACM. So we uh, thought yes. we'd share this. So, you know, uh, <laughs> who you can believe, but uh, the guy who helped invent TCP/IP, right? <laughs> yeah, it's people should know who he is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is uh, an article from the August issue of the Communications of the ACM. Uh, about some recent issues uh, that have come up on the internet. So he says, uh, at a recent workshop on cybersecurity in the UK, a primary topic of consideration was how to preserve the freedom and openness of the internet while at the same time protecting against the harmful behaviors that have emerged in the global medium. Uh, this, uh, this is a significant challenge that cannot be overstated. Um, the bad behaviors range from social network bullying to misinformation down to, you know, email spam, to distributed denial of service attacks, cyber attacks against infrastructure, malware propagation, identity theft, and a host of other ills uh, requiring a wide range of technical and legal considerations. Uh, that these harmful behaviors can and do cross international boundaries only makes it more difficult to fashion effective responses and laws. Uh, in other columns, I have argued for better software development tools to reduce the common mistakes that lead to the vulnerabilities that are being exploited. Here, I want to focus on another aspect of response related to law enforcement and tracking down perpetrators. Of course, not all harms are, or perhaps are not yet, illegal, but, can, uh, but discovering those who caused them may still be warranted. Uh, the recent adoption and implementation of the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, in the European Union creates an interesting tension because it highlights the importance and value of privacy, while those who do direct or indirect harm must still be tracked down and have their identities discovered. Uh, mm -hmm. In passing, I mentioned that cryptography has sometimes been blamed for protecting the identity or actions of criminals, but it is also a tool for protecting privacy. Arguments have been made for backdoors to cryptographic systems, uh, but I am of the opinion that such proposals carry extremely high risks to privacy and safety. Uh, it is not my intent to argue this question in this column. Uh, what is of interest to me is the concept uh, to which we, uh, to which I was introduced at the uh, workshop, specifically differential traceability. The ability to trace bad actors to bring them to justice seems to meet an important goal in a civilized society. The tension with privacy uh, and privacy protection leads to the idea that only under appropriate circumstances can privacy be violated. By way of an example, consider license plates on cars. They are usually arbitrarily identifiers and special authority is needed to match them up with the car's owner. Unless, of course... Uh, they have a vanity plate like mine. Surfs up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice. <laughs> and so this is an example of differential traceability. The, the, police, the police department has the authority to demand ownership information from the Department of Motor Vehicles that issued the license plate. Ordinary citizens do not have this authority. Of course, you know, we get in... Uh, this isn't from the article. Uh, we get into the problem of how 
easily uh, should the Department of Motor Vehicles give this information to the police? Do the police mm. have to show some probable cause to look up this information? Uh, and so on. So mm. it makes sense to have something like differential privacy uh, or differential traceability, but at the same time, the controls in place need to actually make sense. Uh, anyway, continuing. In the internet environment, there are a variety of identifiers associated with users, including corporate users. Uh, you know, domain names, IP addresses, email addresses, public cryptographic keys, and uh, so on are just examples among many others. Some of these identifiers are dynamic and thus ambiguous. For example, IP addresses are not always permanent and may change. Uh, for example, temporary IP addresses assigned to Wi-Fi hotspots or may be ambiguous uh, in this case of network address translation where there are many users behind that one IP address. Information about the time of assignment and the party to whom the IP address was assigned may be needed to actually identify an individual user. Uh, there has been considerable debate and uh, even a recent course case uh, regarding requirement for uh, domain registrars and users in the domain who is database in the context of the adoption of GDPR. If we are to accomplish the simultaneous objectives of protecting privacy while apprehending those engaged in harmful or criminal behavior on the internet, we must find some balance between uh, conflicting but desirable outcomes of privacy and traceability. Uh, this suggests to me that the notion of traceability under internationally agreed circumstances, that is, differential traceability, may be a fruitful concept to explore. In most societies today, is it accepted that we must be identifiable to appropriate authorities under certain conditions? Uh, you know, consider boarded crossing traffic violation stops as an example. While there are conditions under which uh, apparent anonymity is desired and even justifiable, for example, whistleblowing, um, absolute anonymity is actually quite difficult to achieve, uh, another point made at the workshop, and might not uh, be absolutely desirable given the misbehaviors apparent uh, that anonymity invites. Uh, I expect this to be a conversation, con uh, controversial conclusion, and I look forward to subsequent discussions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is certainly an issue that a lot of people are um, affected by, or at least um, should be concerned about. Yeah. And, well, yeah, and the other problem you have is how do you, especially when you get to the international scale, deal with the fact of, you know, what one government considers to be reasonable cause for differential traceability doesn't necessarily match with others. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's difficult uh, at an international level to uh, across borders. And yeah, that makes the Internet also an interesting place to be. Yep. Anyway, I just thought that was... Uh, an interesting thing to get everybody thinking about. Yep. Something more um, practical-oriented uh, is the next item, a remote access console using FreeBSD on an R Pi 3, which is the Raspberry Pi 3. Uh, the B, the 3B Plus that they did as uh, a little bit of an upgrade of the traditional or the, uh, the one they call the Raspberry Pi 3. Um, this is over at black.be. And starts with, our friend and Fosdem booth neighbor, Jorge, has posted a tutorial on how to create a remote access console for his SmartOS server and other machines in his home lab. Oh, excellent. And that will, uh, including, yeah, so the parts for this are the Raspberry Pi 3B Plus, 
uh, Navolabs Micro PoE hat, die FT4232H based USB to RS232 adapter, four times or 4x. Uh, official Raspberry Pi 3 case, that's optional, but um, yeah, keep it safe in, in a little box here. Uh, the heatsink kit is also optional, but uh, the more you put this thing into into work, it would help uh, having a heatsink there. Uh, USB to TTL adapter, also optional, and a SanDisk 16 gigabyte microSD. Of course, it can be any other microSD, but the SanDisk ones are pretty good in reading and writing, and also in longevity. At least I used the same, and I had, had no problem so far. So, uh, back to the article. For the software, uh, he ended up with using Conserver. Below is a very brief tutorial on how to set everything up. Uh, he assumes you have basic Unix skills, and um, here goes. Get an RPI3 image, make some minor modifications for RPI3+, and write yeah, it to so the USB the stick. the default images we have are for the RPI3, not the 3B+. Uh, so, we had to replace the uh, the device tree uh, and uh, some U-boot stuff in the image. <clears throat> Hopefully that'll be resolved soon though. Uh, yep. There's work in progress always. Uh, <laughs> in this part, um, configure the RPI3 on the, yeah, load the MUG, MUGE Ethernet driver, load the USB serial uh, support into the uh, image, load the FTDI driver, then enable SSHD and conserver. Uh, configure conserver so that multiple people can watch this uh, session in, in, if need be. Then set up the log so rotation. See, he's got a, Example of the config file here. You can see he's got it connected to his switch via serial, uh, his SmartOS node via serial, uh, one of his compute nodes via IPMI, uh, another node via serial, another node via IPMI, and so on. Mm -hmm. And yeah, uh, you're up, uh, running up and running this way, and... Uh... Yeah, the config should get you started. And as a small bonus script, uh, he wrote, turn on the second LED on the RPI once the system is booted so that you know that it's uh, there. Uh, it will then blink the LED if someone is connected to any of the consoles. And it's a nice little visual feedback here. And there's a follow-up post uh, with some additional tips that we also put in the show notes for you if you are really into this kind of Raspberry Pi-ing. Yeah, great. Uh, I will probably adapt some of this because I, the the Raspberry Pi three that I have in uh, at work is uh, chugging along nicely, but it needs a bit of upgrades. Um, so I move some of the services uh, temporarily out of that, and uh, then we'll update the little thing and then have a, um, a a small subset of services running on that one. But so far, I'm happy with the Raspberry Pi three and FreeBSD running on it. Uh, no problems. So, time for the BC Bits this week. We have the annual penguin races that we thought we should share with you because it's funny because it mentions BSD. Uh, this is a little comic here. Yeah, it's a little comic, and there's two penguins, and the first one asks, who do we have this year for the annual penguin race? And the second one says, we have invited the best runners of all time. Uh, so our runners are Ubuntu, CentOS, uh, DevOne, Arch Linux, and Debian. And then a little bit of mail kind of flies out of the corner. <laughs> and, say, yep. and I don't see OpenBSD among the runners. And they say, uh, about that, we just received a letter from OpenBSD. Uh, OpenBSD asserts this race is not safe and thus declines to participate. <laughs> <laughs> Again, says the other penguin. <laughs> 
Yeah, we thought this okay. would be. Yeah. OpenBSD is in the fan of race conditions. <laughs> yeah, so no, we're not getting into that race. Yeah. <laughs> Very I nice. Found that yeah. Amusing, so. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So uh, next up is MSC Gen Message Sequence Chart Generator. So what yeah, does so that do? Yeah, so this program uh, and the language it parses have been inspired by the GraphViz Dot program. Um, but in this example, you can make uh, diagrams very easily. So, for example, the second one here, they have uh, showing data block one, data block two, and data block three being sent from the client to the server. But data block two didn't make it. So the server sends back an acknowledgement of data block one and a negative acknowledgement on data block two. Um, and then data block two is sent, and then the client or the server acknowledges data block three, which means it knows it has received one and, or sorry, two and three and so on. But you can see how you can create that in a very short uh, script. Hmm. Yep. Very nice. That's um, a more always... detailed explanation of how you can do all kinds of interesting things with it. Yeah. Not just uh, communications, but also uh, putting it a little bit further. Uh, yeah. Cool. If people want to visualize uh, a lot of uh, people or uh systems chatting with each other and who sent which messages at which time that's a good way of uh, visualizing that yep and yeah next up we have um, a little tuning here for uh, FreeBSD so we have a review here dispatch makes FreeBSD boot 500 till 800 milliseconds faster please test on your hardware so this is from Colin Percival's effort to make the um, boot faster that he's been talking about since the beginning of the year at Asia BSDCon and even way before that. So it says, uh, so this, uh, is... this patch will keep a record of the most recently drawn character and the uh, foreground and background colors uh, for that text in the bit 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 blit text function uh, and compare those values to this cache and won't redraw a character if it's not actually changed uh, because he found that when booting uh, a, a large ET2 instance with many CPUs, um, redrawing the screen, especially the right side where nothing had changed, because all the text is on the left side, uh, was using a lot of time. And with this patch, uh, the time to boot that EC2 instance, or sorry, the time spent doing printfs in that type of instance during boot dropped from uh, 1200 milliseconds to 700 milliseconds. He also expects the results to be even greater on laptops with very high-resolution screens. I think uh, his laptop, he has a... Um, the Galago a Pro. 4K, yeah, he's got a 4K monitor on his. So the time spent on his laptop went from 970 milliseconds to 155 milliseconds. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, so it's not just for servers or virtual machines. So people should test this on their hardware and hopefully see a little bit of more improvement there in printing speed. And there's more. Uh, we have another thing that's been recently committed. The uh, Arc for Random in FreeBSD um, got replaced with OpenBSD's ChaCha20 implementation. Yeah, I know this has been in the works for a number of years. I'm not sure how it got stalled, but it has finally finished now. Uh, and all of user land in FreeBSD will use ChaCha20. Excellent, yeah. That's uh, one area uh, catching up um, or putting stuff from OpenBSD that's been 
used for a while and it's been uh, tested well and, I think and it's used, been used for a while. In other parts of FreeBSD for quite some time. Uh, yeah, yeah, and then Art for Random is just another missing bit uh, in that part of changes. Well, no, so that's. Uh, even the arc for random, I think, in the kernel's been replaced with ChaCha20 for some time. It was just a username oh. or something. Uh, oh wow! But Even the better. the bug about this dates back to 2013, uh, and it's been in progress since then. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, for me, it's a sign of uh, activity in the uh, sec team area, not just uh, dealing with stuff that's coming up, but also right. well, uh, finishing up. In particular, at, at some point, we do need to look at uh, replacing. Uh, sec team with like a, a a security engineering team that works on features and code, and a sec team that's more responsive to uh, dealing with uh, individual like uh, the issues as they come up, kind of thing. Because mm. uh, yes, in particular, I can see even back uh, a year and a half ago, there's. Dag Erling saying, holy flying spaghetti monster, I thought this was committed ages ago. <laughs> and so on. Yep, very nice. Cool. Thanks yes, for having that. Uh, a good chunk of this landed in March of 2017, uh, and then some more of it in May of 2017, and so on. Mm, yeah, there were bits <laughs> here and there, but the final piece is this. And it's great that we have it now. Yep. Uh, next up, uh, there is a Dev Summit happening uh, the day before MeetBSD or in conjunction with MeetBSD, so people can sign up for this. The FreeBSD Foundation have put up a registration system, and um, people can uh, subscribe to it if they're interested in joining the Dev Summit. Um, that's mostly for FreeBSD devs, but if someone wants to be included, we can, I yes. guess, uh, the message. If, if you work... Uh, on FreeBSD uh, as a developer, then especially if you work at a vendor, um, we very much would like to have you there and hear from you. Mm -hmm. And last but not least, we have news from Michael W. Lucas, ever busy uh, promoting his writing work. Of course, that's uh, a good thing to have. And more people know about his books, uh, whether they're fiction or nonfiction. Uh, so he did a podcast recently, an interview, and that's what he blogged about this. Uh, apparently, August 2018 is shamelessly shill yourself month, he writes. Uh, I appeared on the IT in the D podcast last week. There's a link here if you're interested. Uh, a fun time was had by all, well, at least by me. And that's the important thing, right? We talked about um, my books, Decades of IT, SSH, ED, ed and uh, General Nerdery. Uh, so he worked with Dave and Bob almost 20 years ago. Somehow they forgot just how painful it was to work with him and invited him to the show. And if you think uh, he's being self-deprecating here, the Michael Lucas Oversight Committee was an integral part of the company. So <laughs> some of you require managerial oversight. He needs a freaking team. Really, it's best if he's self-employed. Uh, he's nearly not fit for civilized company, he writes, and uh, finishes with, meanwhile, Bob and Dave went on to try to improve things for technology folks in Detroit. It's like they're being better humans than he is or something. But it's typical Michael Lucas, yeah. So if you're interested in a full podcast, uh, it's linked in his blog post. And um, yeah, what else is there to say by Michael Lucas books? This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Head over to tarsnap.com slash BSD Now and start doing your backups. 
You'll regret it if you don't. Oh, yeah. Definitely, because if you miss backups, then one day you will be, oh, I would have liked to have that file back, and it's not there anymore. But if you have Tarsnap backups, you will have those somewhere in the cloud, but they're encrypted. No one can look at it without the keys, and you're the person who's holding the only key. And yeah, that's what Tarsnap provides for you. It looks at your files, how many you have there, and how much gigabytes it would. Then it does deduplication, finding common bits in there then encrypts them, uh, compresses them so that they're smaller, and then it encrypts them with a local key that only you have, and then sends it out into the Amazon cloud. And that's All what right. Tarsnap gives you. Uh, so, feedback section, bit thin mm-hmm. this week. Uh, so, we need more feedback emails. So, if you have something you'd like to hear about on the show, if you have a question or a comment or anything please write in to feedback at bsdnow.tv and let us know what you think. And uh, for your contemplation at BSDCAM, uh, a number of different ideas were proposed, uh, but the one that I like the most, uh, we might just hope to try out soon. So uh, we're considering a new segment to be added to the end of the show uh, to make it skippable because it might not work so well in audio-only form. Um, But basically, we'd have an about 15-minute segment uh, with a deep dive on a specific topic or subsystem. So uh, some of the initial ideas are actually like the virtual memory subsystem, the scheduler, Capsicum, Geom, other uh, kind of deep technology bits of uh, the operating system. Uh, so many of those explanations would be accompanied by graphics and stuff that uh, probably wouldn't be very useful on an audio-only version. Uh, so that's why we're looking at putting it at the end so that you can skip it if you're in the car. Because probably if you're in the car, um, 15 minutes of function names at, and so on is probably not yeah. that helpful. Look at that picture. Look at that picture. And it's you have a, to have a very good imagination to uh, figure out what Well, even, even without the, the pictorial part, just you know a bunch of function names. And it's like this function then calls this function, which does this. And that calls this one. It's probably a lot harder to follow with audio only, especially while commuting or something. Um, right. But the idea is to basically build up a library of videos on uh, the more the actual computer science bits of operating system design uh, and, you know, get more of that information out there, especially for students uh, who might become the next kernel developer. Yeah, who knows who's watching this episode or this podcast uh, to get into their own version of BSD and involved in the project by just listening to these and getting a little bit more understanding and explanations about certain parts that they will probably do for Google Summer of Code maybe or contributing um, on their own. That yeah, I think it's, nice it's a see. little more targeted to uh, like people who are actually trying to do research on uh, into operating system design and so on. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, I used a, a similar video on... Uh, Matt Aarons did one as part of, I think, Kirk McHugh's uh, set of code reading classes on just like how the whole read and write path of ZFS works from the moment you run the the read or write system call in your C application uh, down through when data goes on the disk and back the other way. Um, And I found it extremely useful and basically having smaller bite-sized versions of that uh, might be very useful. Yep. 
But again, ah, if you still have feedback, then of course you can also send it to us at a uh, regular email, feedback at bsdnow.tv, and we'll include it in a future episode. Yeah, so if you have uh, what subsystems you would like to learn first, we'd love to hear that. Uh, and if you're a developer who'd be willing to make uh, maybe one or, or more short 15-minute videos walking through uh, a subsystem, that also be very good, useful. I'm hoping I convince a certain developer who gave a presentation, a 45-minute version of uh, some of the data structures of the virtual memory subsystem uh, to break that up into a couple pieces and do them. Uh, hopefully we can start having that in a, a couple of months. But uh, in the meantime, it would be very useful to know A, what parts you would like to see, and B, who would like to volunteer to help make those. Mm. Yeah. Watch this space. We'll have more information in future episodes. And uh, yeah, see you next time. See you next week. <laughs>